Welcome to the 338th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome teachers Rebecca Martinson and Angela Minor back to COVID Calls to talk about COVID-19 and the return to the school year. I'll also be joined by co-host Shivani Patel, COVID Calls All-Star and Drexel University student. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Special program note, this is a special COVID Calls, which is taking place at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 9th, 2021, there are 4,598,888 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary of Walter Kearse, written by Leon Stafford for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it appeared August 21st, 2021. In June, Walter Kearse developed a cough that he couldn't shake and figured it was just the pollen that accompanies changing seasons. He just thought it was seasonal allergies, his wife Kinonia Lachey Kearse said Friday. It's something our whole family suffers with. After trying over-the-counter remedies, the cough persisted, and Walter Kearse, a coach at Luella Middle School in Henry County, went to the doctor, and then again and again. Each time, Kearse, who was vaccinated against the coronavirus, took a COVID-19 test, three in all, negative, negative, negative. By late July, doctors said he had bronchitis, but no medicine helped, and he ended up in the emergency room on July 30th, 2021, with doctors saying he now had pneumonia and would need to be admitted. They tested him again for COVID-19. This time, the result was positive. Kearse, age 36, died August 13th, 2021, one of a growing number of so-called breakthrough cases among people vaccinated against the disease, but infected nonetheless as the highly infectious Delta variant ravages the country. Please, man, take care of yourselves, he said in a Facebook video posted August 3rd from a bed at Piedmont Fayette Hospital. In the post, an oxygen tube is strapped to his nose and his voice is labored as he tries to speak. This thing is not fun, he said. It is not easy. COVID is real, y'all. It's real. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that while breakthrough cases can result in death, it does not happen often, statistically. According to the Georgia Department of Public Health, of the 4.9 million people in the state that were fully vaccinated as of August 10th, about 13,332 have tested positive for coronavirus. Among that group, 198 have been hospitalized and 105 of those have died. 
harder to discern is how many overall breakthrough cases the nation is dealing with, said Dr. Harry Hyman, a clinical associate professor at Georgia State University's School of Public Health. Those numbers were not tracked for a long time and are just now starting to get the attention they deserve. Data shows that if a vaccine can provide on the order of 95% protection from a serious or life-threatening illness, that's a very high level of protection, he said, but that doesn't mean there is not risk. Pierce was a diabetic and had high blood pressure, his wife said. However, he had changed his diet and increased exercise and was no longer receiving insulin injections. He also had switched to a lower dosage of high blood pressure medication. He was moving in the right direction as far as his health is concerned, she said. He did have a kidney issue that we were dealing with where he was losing a lot of protein in his urine. That was the focus of our concerns. Mrs. Kearse said she and their children have tested negative throughout the duration of his illness and hospitalization. Their oldest daughter, Catlin, 12, has been, has been vaccinated. Their other children, Kayla, 7, and Anderson, 4, are not yet eligible. Hundreds posted condolences to Kearse's wife on her Facebook page offering prayers and memories. I'm so very sorry to hear about Walter. Emily Holtzman, a counselor for the district, wrote on the page, he was such a great guy. He always had a greeting and a smile at work, even on the extra tough days. Walter Kearse grew up in Macon, Georgia, and was working as a janitor at a Head Start program in 2005 when he fell in love with teaching, his wife said. After we met, he said, I want to do more, Kenyonya Kearse said. He enrolled in Liberty University and became a substitute teacher in Macon. In 2012, he and his wife moved to Atlanta, and he began working as a paraprofessional in Henry County. Nyonya, who also is an educator, is a chorus teacher at Luella High School. In addition to his educational ambitions, he received his bachelor's degree in education in 2016. Walter Kearse became an ordained minister, his wife said. He had enrolled at Mercer University to earn a master's in divinity and would have begun classes in August. This was the year to do that, she said, adding that he also planned to get a master's in education after finishing his divinity studies. Walter Kearse also was adding on to his responsibilities as assistant track and basketball coach at Luella Middle, becoming a graduation coach this year. Inonia Kearse said there are many things she'll miss about her husband. She said she'll miss harmonizing with him as they both sang around the house and coming home to find him asleep in front of the TV watching 90s sitcoms like Martin, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and The Jamie Foxx Show. But most of all, she'll miss a man who loved his children. Whenever their children achieved a goal, he rewarded them with a treat, including mozzarella sticks or a slushy. We would always kid with each other which one of us spoiled the kids the most, she said. We really spoiled them equally. And she'll miss the man who, even in his darkest hour, was thinking of others, she said. The video he posted to Facebook pleading with others to take the coronavirus seriously was the man she loved. That final video he posted was an example of his care for his neighbor, she said. That's who he was. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guests. You've met them before on COVID calls, but it's been a year, so it's time to reintroduce them and really excited to bring them on today. Rebecca Martinson is a nurse teaching intro to nursing and anatomy and physiology to high school students for the last 10 years. It's her 11th year in teaching. Last year, she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. 
which was critical of the planning going into COVID safety related to schools. During the past year, in addition to teaching, she has volunteered at several mass vaccination clinics as a draw nurse and vaccinator. Her area is seeing its largest surge ever in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. However, under her governor's order, she's returning full-time in person to the classroom on September 1st, and we're gonna hear about that. And then let me also introduce Mrs. Angela Miner. She's been teaching high school students since 1995. She currently teaches AP government, current world issues and issues and advocacy, class, race, and gender in America in Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She also teaches graduate classes through the Regional Training Center, which partners with LaSalle University and the College of New Jersey. And I am joined, I'm so happy to be joined by Shivani Patel, co-host today. Shivani, can you introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Shivani Patel, and I'm studying economics and finance at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And as some of you know, um, I've been helping with COVID calls behind the scenes as a production assistant since July 2020. And I've learned a lot. Thanks to Scott. Helping doesn't quite capture it. And, uh, the way I tell most people is uh, no Shivani, no COVID calls. So I think that's that's pretty much wh where we are with that. Uh, every time a guest comes on, that means Shivani has has found that guest and made it possible for them to come on the program. So great to see you, Shivani. I hope the, you haven't started the term yet, have you? My classes officially start September 20th. So we're kind of in like a break week. Okay, so this is that you're like, I have 10 days left of summer. What am I going to do with it? Kind of panic right now. So. No summer. I'm on co-op right now. So no, no summer. I forget. Trexel students don't acknowledge summer. So um, let's let's um, start the way we generally do to find out about our guests and particularly where they're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Angela, can I start with you on that? Sure. So I am in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, we are considered high risk level, but currently a low vulnerability. So that's how we're kind of rated. In other words, we have the characteristics to be very high risk in terms of population density, um, hospital space, things like that. Um, I looked up the numbers. We're actually at 21.7 per 100,000 residents in our um, daily case count. And we are at a seven and a half percent positivity rate, which is not great. Um, the other thing that surprised me when I looked into it is compared to our state, our percentages of vaccinations are significantly lower. So here in Pennsylvania, um, according to recent data, um, people with at least one dose of vaccine are 70 percent. In my county, it's only 57.9 percent, um, which is surprising to me as a, a county that is you know, suburban Philadelphia, um, but that's the number. Our ICU beds are at 56% capacity right now. Um, we have six, 65 people hospitalized, 11 adults in ICU, and five on ventilators. Um, our schools are um, fully opened. I don't know of any school in the area that is not. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but we went back last week um, at full capacity, essentially. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for that, Angela. Rebecca, bringing you in. Same question. Where are you and, and how's it looking there? So I'm about 60 miles north of Seattle in Washington State. And um, like you mentioned in the intro, we are seeing our highest case numbers since um, the start of the pandemic, highest ever. So right now, um, our case count 
uh, as well as hospitalizations and deaths are all three uh, increasing. My county has a population of 130,000. Um, yesterday, we I didn't check today. Yesterday, we had 196 new cases. Um, this week, we've had five new deaths, and we've had 36 new hospitalizations with COVID. In my region, our ICU beds are hovering right about 90% full. Um, however, uh, not all of those are COVID. Obviously, there's other things that go wrong, but over 40% are COVID, and that's a lot of beds that aren't available for any other reason. Our test positivity rate is hovering between 13 and 15%. So to me, that's high of the kite. <laughs> um, our hospitals have been on divert status several times in the last week, meaning um, if you have a life-threatening emergency, you're in a car accident, you're traveling either 30 miles north or 60 miles south for a hospital bed. I think it's frightening. While school is back fully in person, there is no option for remote or hybrid at this point. I think we'll definitely talk about that. Shivani, let me turn it over to you. Yeah, of course. So uh, to kind of set the scene for COVID cases in the Philadelphia college area, um, as of right now, uh, you know, you spoke like Drexel starts the academic year a lot later than most of the schools due to the quarter system. So my classes don't start till September 20. So we'll see how the scene unfolds. But um, Drexel does have like a layered approach to COVID-19 mitigation, like vaccine and mask mandate, and then um, like consistent sanitation techniques in like common areas. But I think we should give it a few weeks to see how the COVID scene really unfolds. Um, but for the next question, um, you know, it's it's been a year since we spoke with you, Mrs. Miner and Ms. Martinson. Um, could could you guys give us maybe a strong memory you've had of the pandemic since we talked to you last year? Uh, sure, I guess I'll jump in. And mine is um, on a pretty personal note. So I actually got COVID in November. My husband and I both. Um, still don't know how we got it because I went um, to school, which at that point was virtual with the exception of teachers reporting to teach virtually from school and the grocery store. And I wore a mask um, and I believe I got it before my husband. Um, my aunt and uncle who live probably three hours west of um, Philadelphia um, also um, were diagnosed with COVID, had pretty bad cases. My grandfather who lived with them, um, eventually tested positive. They traced it back to a home healthcare worker. My grandfather passed away um, the week of Thanksgiving from COVID. Um, so for me, it's been a very personal journey um, in terms of just experiencing, experiencing it myself. And I had a relatively mild case. I don't wanna get caught up in symptoms and such. My husband and I had very different um, symptoms. Um, but my daughter turned 16 and she was quarantined in her bedroom because we had COVID. Um, so it hit my family personally pretty hard, I have to say. In addition to obviously all the stress of teaching one semester fully virtual and then the next semester doing hybrid with most of my students choosing to stay home. So teaching in-person students 
at the same time that I was teaching at-home students with two new curriculum. Um, it was it was a pretty challenging year, to say the least. Yeah. Um, so for me, and Angela, I'm so, I'm so sorry for your loss and that you went through that. Um, I also did a semester fully online, fully remote. Our second semester was partly full remote and then back in person. The majority of my students um, for hybrid came back in hybrid. I had only a couple that stayed um, fully remote. Um, I think the things that really stuck out to me um, first, like I will admit, I felt really deeply depressed. I think that everything about who I am and teaching was so different. And I'd watch the little black boxes just dissolve off my screen. And it was just a gut punch. Um, and then more recently, you know, I've, I've worked at those mass vaccination clinics and you have to mix, um, mix the vaccine in specific ways. And at first people were so excited to get it right. Uh, we would run out of vaccine and then we threw a lot of vaccine away and earlier this week. So I think this is a culmination for me earlier this week. Um, a friend's husband died and I know that he wasn't vaccinated, but it's hard for me not to think about the people who've died and to remember the doses that I personally threw in the garbage. And I don't know if it's survivor guilt. I don't know if it's just this weird time that we're in, but um, I don't know that I'll ever forget that. Um, I know it's not my fault, but doesn't feel good. Thank, thank you both for sharing those thoughts and memories. And um, Angela, just really sorry for what you went through. And and thanks for sharing it with us. Because I know as hard as it is, people do need, want to hear that and need to hear that, to be reminded. Somehow you wouldn't think it'd be necessary, but to still be reminded, it's so real and so so personal. And, and I went back and looked, and, and when we talked, uh, a little bit more than a year ago, August 31st, 2020, we all convened. And at that time, there were 183,300 deaths from COVID in the United States, which seemed apocalyptic and impossible. And now here we find ourselves in this in this time, in this situation. Um, Rebecca, I, I talked with writer John Mualam, who also lives in Washington State, a couple months ago. Well, yeah, I guess on COVID calls. And he he worked in vaccination center in Washington there as well and described it as a as a really an unexpectedly um, exhilarating community building sort of experience particularly at the beginning and the people who were involved with it got super organized and were constantly communicating with each other and and he said but i think they didn't have this experience you described and they never had to get rid of vaccine and they closed it before they reached the point you're sort of mm -hmm. describing 
right now. Yeah. And it, it certainly wasn't like that at the beginning. At the beginning, it was jubilant. People were so excited and they would roll up their sleeves and they were thrilled. And we had a few people that were nervous, but most people were so happy. So um, we vaccinated tons of teachers who were coming back into the classroom and they were ready. Um, and then it just shifted to where we would actually go, we would call all of our friends and family to try to get them in to take those doses. Um, and then literally would walk out onto the sidewalk. Have you had your COVID vaccine? Have you had your COVID vaccine? And sadly, it just didn't work a lot of the time. Angela, that, that jubilation that Rebecca is describing, I think was pretty nationally and frankly, internationally felt as well. I'm in South Korea now, but I remember that sort of moment of American jubilation as one where we started talking here about plans to return to the U.S. It seemed from the vantage point to me of like May and June that the crest had been reached and then the Delta variant uh, comes. And, and I wanted to ask you both, I'm going to start with you, Angela, how did your school district or your school, particularly however you want to address it, begin to take on board the concerns for Delta and to think about measures to mitigate against it as you prepared for the time you're in right now, the return to the school year 2021? Um. If I'm completely honest, I don't believe that we have, and I don't believe most uh, school districts in my area have. Um, we originally had planned, so I will say the one thing that we changed, we originally planned on going mask um, required for the grades where they were not eligible for vaccines and mask, mask optional at the secondary level. That was the one thing that did change, and that was because a few weeks ago, local hospitals reached out out of concern and asked school districts to please consider a mask mandate. Um, we complied with that as well as the neighboring district that my daughter who's a junior is in. Most other districts in my area did not. They went full steam ahead with mask optional um, until um, last week where our state health department announced that K through 12 schools would be required to have masks. Uh, even then, um, in some neighboring districts, they are making it very, very easy to opt out of that. I will say for my school, um, at least right now, we are holding the line on mask uh, in terms of um, making it more difficult for students to get an exemption, um, with the exception of students with um, documented disabilities that would preclude them from wearing a mask. Um, we do not have social distancing in place. I would say of any kind, we have said three feet if you can, one foot if you can, but we're not requiring it. Um, we have full lunch periods with no mask for 30 minutes. Um, and we're talking about we're, at, we're a high school with three cafeterias, over 3,000 students. Um, my classes, I have full loads of kids with my largest having 27 students. Um, which makes it really difficult to do any type of social distancing. So whereas the last year, I think my school was doing a lot of things right, going virtual, uh, you know, not bowing to the pressure of the public immediately who wanted to come back to school. Um, many of them have on our school board are not running for reelection. They are exhausted and spent from receiving threats and hostile crowds at board meetings. And even though they are the minority, they are very loud. 
And so they've kind of um, thrown their hands up a bit, even with uh, this variant raging, unfortunately. I will say one more thing. We do have a virtual option um, for students. So we at least did provide that. There are some school districts that have not provided that at all for students. Ms. Martinson, um, we've noticed, you know, when you look at the stats and stuff, the number of children who have been testing positive and also being hospitalized um, has been increasing significantly, like all over the country, not just Washington State or Pennsylvania. Um, but schools, as you heard what Mrs. Miner said, they're still continuing to open full force. Why do you think that is? Well, I, you know, I will say that Angela and I could be in the same district as far as what our guidelines are. We do have a pretty strong union as far as mass, um, but it is three feet if possible. A colleague of mine had 43 students in his math class. It's a regular size classroom. That's a lot. Um, honestly, I think it's political pressure. Um, state governors have seen the recall effort in California with Governor Newsom. Um, the people who led that recall effort did so based on the fact that they thought his COVID restrictions were too harsh. Um, and, the, you know, they pointed out some hypocrisy there. Um, I think that uh, they don't want to find themselves in the dire situation um, that Governor Newsom finds himself in. I, and I'll be clear. I do think that schools should be the first open and the last to close. And I hated Zoom school, but we didn't do that. And we still haven't done that. We opened bars, we opened restaurants, we have opened major sporting events and concerts that we've had huge super spreading events at. And right now our govern governor has made it extremely difficult to close a school or start remote learning. Today, he gave a speech. I watched a little bit of it. It sounded like he was cracking the door, um, knowing that cases are going up, but there is no distancing. And, you know, it might be a minority, but it's enough of a minority, it's enough people to make things really uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's what's happening. Rebecca, let me stay with you for a minute because um, you published an op-ed piece in the New York Times last summer, July, and I just want to, um, people should check out this this op-ed and I'll put the link in the in um, up on Twitter so people can grab it. But you wrote, every day when I walk into work as a public school teacher, I'm prepared to take a bullet to save a child. In the age of school shootings, that's what the job requires. But asking me to return to the classroom amid a pandemic and expose myself and my family to COVID-19 is like asking me to take that bullet home to my own family. I won't do it, and you shouldn't want me to. Now, that was a year ago. I mean, 14 months ago. Um, I guess, you know, that same... It, I guess I want to ask you how you think about that piece now, 14 months later, but also I, it could have been written right now. No. It should have been written right now instead of 14 months ago, right? So with the lens of past experience, maybe with the alpha variant, there were things we could have done. But when we came back this spring, we had six foot separation. Now we have three foot maybe. Um, we had universal masking and we do in my district, but many districts do not have 
um, either don't have mandates or aren't enforcing them. I got my vaccine. Everyone in my family has had their vaccine. However, you read a obituary today. That man was vaccinated and he died doing his job. Um, so I feel like, you know, I could have written the piece today and probably should have. It's probably more prescient now than it was then. Uh, Angela, you mentioned the tension of the school board meetings. I'm, I'm sort of, um, I, you know, I think back to the period when the Affordable Care Act was being discussed in, in that summer. And, and there were a lot of these town hall meetings and they got there was some significant anger and then the media picked up on some of those and they got into they got into circulation and that kind of imprinted on people the idea that you know every town hall meeting right now looks, looks like that and i think that's happened with these school board meetings which you mentioned but i wonder how i guess i'd like to hear more from you about that um because i worry that that sets a tone that then it discourages people from going to those meetings and continuing to advocate for life-saving interventions for teachers and students and administrators and staff. But how realistic is, is that to what you've been experiencing? Um, I would say I've, I've read uh, a lot about this topic. It's something that really interests me as a government teacher. Um, it's pretty, um, unfortunately, it's pretty prevalent all across the United States. What you have is groups that seemingly are grassroots that really aren't grassroots at all that are being funded mysteriously by kind of far right donors. They will provide scripts to people to show up to meetings. For my district, it actually started over critical race theory, which we do not teach, um, but we do have a, uh, a person who's been in a position for two years who's the director of equity um, and who's starting to look at issues of equity in our district. So it started over that. Um, and I think that was really fueled by a lot of myths perpetuated in the media ecosystem, right? Um, and then when our district started discussing, again, the issue of mask, that's where we saw um, just uh, three weeks ago, we had a meeting where our one of our school board directors said that she receives threats that her and her daughter um, will be raped. This is coming from community members. Um, people are showing up, interrupting speakers, holding signs, screaming about freedom. And this has never happened in my district before. I, I, I don't recall, and I've been here um, since 2003. Um, so it's kind of all rolled into one. It's kind of critical race theory, shutdowns, mask, and all of this anger just getting directed at these school board directors in a way that I have actually never seen before. Um, and I just read an article that Steve Bannon has been involved in this in getting people at the local levels to come and agitate. Uh, and I just saw a video yesterday of a young boy who was talking about his grandfather dying of COVID um, and the audience heckled him. And here's this young kid talking about the need to wear masks in school. Um, so I know that, you know, it seems like isolated cases and it seems like it's being ex uh, exacerbated in the media, um, but I've read enough about it that it's really concerning to me. Rebecca, is that happening in your area as well? And I, and I guess the additional sort of question I want to tag on to that it, for people who may be listening internationally 
you know, a school board meeting in the United States is an open thing for people who are members of the community because even non people who are not parents still pay taxes, and our schools in the United States are driven mostly by local um, taxes, property taxes, and sales taxes. So if you're in the community, you're invited. But what, what Angela's describing is something quite different. People coming from outside the community who have no vested interest in the children of that community or how their tax dollars are spent, but they get recognized and allowed to speak. I'm I'm a little confused by that, frankly. Well, let me. Cor- I want to correct that. Okay. Um, they don't get recognized. In, in our uh, district, we have a policy you have to give your address. What I meant by that is that those groups are providing scripts okay. for people who are within the district and telling them, here's when the meetings are, here's what you want to show up and say, here's how you want to be disrupted. Um, I'm not sure of any school districts that allow people with no vested interest to speak. There may be, but that's not happening in my district. But that's a really helpful clarification. And, and just to go further with it, um, when people go to those meetings, if you if you know, like you to come into the room, you have to provide your address or you can come if you want, but you can't get to the microphone if you're not. A um, you can come if you want. So, for example, I do not live in the district um, that okay. I teach in, it. but I could come. And if you want to do public comment, you sign up and you have to put your address at the end. They do allow people who do not live in the district to offer public comment. But that's usually a teacher, a coach, someone who has a vested interest in the district in some way who may not live there. Um, but you do have to provide an address in order to be recognized to speak in my district. Okay, thanks. Re- Rebecca, same question to you, what you think about that. And, and now as Angela is describing it, I almost think it's almost worse that there's this outside well-funded operation, if Steve Bannon's part of it or whoever, who's providing scripts so that people in the district can somehow be radicalized to take over a school board meeting. I, don't we sound insane saying saying that? I would agree. Yeah. Um, I can't so, believe half the questions I ask these days on COVID calls. I can't I, believe the words are coming out of my mouth, frankly. So in my district, kind of the same. I used to go to those meetings all the time um, as part of my union duties. Um, and I would recognize the same four people at every meeting. They weren't well attended. And now they're very well attend, attended. In fact, in my district, the last meeting was supposed to be in person, but there was such a large protest and with credible threats of violence that they moved it to a remote setting. Um, in the neighboring district, the one that I live in, not the one I work in, one of the school board members' barn was burned down. Um, it was arson and it seems to be in retaliation for enforcing a mandate that individual districts don't actually have a say in, which I think is one of the interesting things. So don't actually think that people are coming to these meetings to cause there to be change and to affect change and to have their rights heard. I think people are coming with their script to cause problems um, and to get uh, these sound bites on social media and on the news. Um, they all sound the same. They all use the same verbiage. They all use the same kind of threats. There's very little differentiation. So absolutely. Again, I think that Ms. Miner and I could be teaching in the same district, even though we're across the country. Uh, Mrs. Miner, so my little brother is now a senior at Pensbury and so I'm familiar with how my mom and my dad are interacting with, you know, going, attending the school board meetings and talking to their teachers and things like that. 
But what have you seen? Like, what are the interactions with parents like? Um, is there any trainings for teachers to be like de-escalating any tensions, um, whether that be in person, over email, and things like that? Um, there have been, in my district, no specific trainings um, on de-escalating. Um, our administrators are, are, in general, very supportive. Uh, if we have an issue with a parent, they are more than willing to sit into a, with a conference with us. I personally have not had any negative issues with parents in general, and we just started this school year. But last school year, they were overall very supportive, um, and um, I didn't hear a lot of negativity. I think it's very different what perhaps at my our classroom teachers are hearing versus what our school board members are receiving. So for now, um, with the exception of a uh, nasty letter I got from a community member last year um, when I spoke on an equity panel, um, which is a totally different issue. Um, I, I haven't gotten any personal blowback and I don't know of any teachers that have. Our kids have been um, so far for the year relatively compliant um, with masks. I know I've read about some schools where kids are showing up and refusing to wear them. At least right now we don't have that. Um, so I find most of the parents I deal with to be quite supportive. That's why I'm saying I, I believe it's, again, this vocal minority of people as opposed to the majority of people who just want their kids to be safe coming to school. Let's hope it stays that way, this supportive uh, environment. Rebecca, same question to you. I mean, are, are there support um, training for teachers to, I mean, I guess in one sense, you know, teachers are tough. And they know how to de-escalate tense situations, or they wouldn't last in the classroom long. But this is a different kind of of tension, and there's no release to it. Yeah, it's different. Um, I will say, I teach a medical class, so most people that are very anti-science aren't sending their kid to me. So I haven't had any training, but I also haven't had very much come up. Um, I have a friend that's a school nurse. Uh, she has an entirely different um, perspective on that um, when she has to call to alert to an exposure and that type of thing. She's getting a lot of really negative blowback from parents. And um, so that's that's different. As far as training, we haven't had any. Um, I think we should. Um, and as far as teachers being tough, we are. But I'm tired. Like I just, I've been fighting for the better part of two years and I've never worked harder to be called lazy um, in my life. I don't ever stop working, but I am a lazy teacher if I advocate for my personal safety or the safety of my students. Just to be clear, that's where are you hearing that discourse, Rebecca? So, you know, I, I put myself out there writing that um, writing that op-ed. I did receive uh, thousands of emails or social media messages, some of them very positive, some of them um, I, I can't repeat the language. Um, uh, I had one in particular that showed me the property assessor picture of my house and said, is this where you live, uh, which felt weird because it was just an opinion piece. It wasn't, um, I don't have any say 
if I, if I did, I'd do things a little differently, I think. Um, but as far as, um, I think if you are dumb enough, maybe dumb enough isn't the right word. If you have enough um, self-hatred to look at social media, I don't think you have to dig very far to find um, there are few um, there, there are few jobs out there, few careers out there um, that people are piling on quite as much right now. Um, we are the problem, not the solution in a lot of people's eyes. And the way out of this is ask teachers how to teach. This is the way out. Ask health providers how to get healthy. This is how we get better. And we won't get better until we do that. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today to Angela Miner and Rebecca Martinson, their second visit to COVID Calls, about the situation of being a teacher right now in America in the middle of this pandemic and the and the Delta variant. Uh, Rebecca, I want to stay with you on, on this um, issue about preparation for teachers. Um, has the teachers' union offered much here in terms of, again, um, if it's uh, coping with anxiety or stress relief or new skills and how to communicate or just how to, uh, how to deal right now. So our, our union, um, we have one of, so my district is the largest employer in our county. Um, we have a lot of kids. Our union is pretty strong. Um, there are quite a few online trainings, um, that sort of thing. And in fact, our district also offers those. Um, we're tired. I don't know that after I finish here, I'm going to go do a three hour training in front of the computer on how to cope with my stress. Um, I'm just not sure that it's not sustainable right now as a teacher, but we have been sustaining for a year and a half and we keep saying something has to give, but then we, it felt like we were so close. Then the summer happened and it feels like we are not back where we started. We're further down the hole with fewer tools and I don't know that I have a good answer. Um, I do think our, I think that our um, union is pretty strong. Now, our governor and our state superintendent said, you have to offer full-time in-person. There is no, um, uh, no hybrid, no remote right now. So we can't bargain working conditions that say we've got to keep kids three feet or six feet apart. We can't bargain that because that would go against a legal mandate. Um, what we can bargain for is HEPA filters and um, high quality PPE like KN95s or KF94s instead of just um, the paper masks from Costco. Um, we did bargain that no one in our district is allowed to wear a gaiter um, because we had some credible evidence that gators are actually not good as um, PPE. So there are things that we've gotten, but the things we really think that we need, according to health officials, we can't bargain. Um, our hands are tied. I wanted to see how much of that resonates with you, Angela. I don't know the situation of the teachers union there in, in Pennsylvania. Is it 
similar to what Rebecca is describing? Um, I think our union has done a, a good job, uh, I would say, last year. This year, the problem is our contract expired. And so now the focus is on negotiating a contract, which I understand as well. Um, I think in general, society gives too much power to teachers unions like in, in terms of what they believe we have the power to do. And while there may be more power in perhaps some urban unions, for example, Chicago last year, who was telling their teachers not to go to work, we don't have that luxury. We don't get to set the schedule. We don't get to set class sizes. We get to bring up concerns. And our district last year was relatively responsive to those concerns. Um, but we don't have the power think people think we do uh, in terms of just saying we're not going to work. Um, I will say in terms of um, things that we try to do as a staff that resonates with me as well. Like the, they would love for us to do wellness activities, mindfulness. We had wellness Wednesdays last year, once a month where we didn't have to have office hours during the virtual day. And we could use that to go outside and walk. The problem is we were, we had so much work to do. Most of us just use the time to do work. Um, so very similar. It's great to have those trainings, but the way in which we have those trainings is just on top of the work we do, which then you're stressed about doing the training on how to do stress. <laughs> so it, it, I know people mean well, um, but it's, it's not done in a very practical way um, to really make a, make a dent for our mental health. Uh, Mrs. Miner, another question for you. Um, you know, as we all know, schools are like full-fledged open right now with the mask mandates and, um, you know, social distancing. But um, what is the discourse about going remote um, in schools um, and who decides? What are like the pros and cons of it? What are your thoughts? Um, our school board would decide with recommendation from our superintendent, and I really do believe the only way that that would happen is if our governor ordered it to happen. There is no conversation about going remote whatsoever. There's no conversation about shutting down. Um, there's no conversation about going remote after uh, a Thanksgiving or winter break. Um, I don't think anyone wants to deal with the blowback of that. But if it were to happen, I would see the only way it would happen in Pennsylvania is if a, the governor ordered it, the state legislature will in no way, they, they wouldn't order the mask mandate for schools. They are in no way going to ask people to shut down. It's just not going to happen. And the pros and cons to that, uh, I would agree with Rebecca. I don't wanna go back to remote teaching. I want my kids in front of me. Um, my students first semester in virtual, they were great. They were fantastic for, for my advanced placement classes. Um, but it's not the same as having kids in front of you, building those relationships, having kids work together in groups, have discussions, problem solve, no matter how much I try to replicate that. Um, you're just not going to have that in a virtual world. Now, obviously, the positive is that we all are safer, right? We can control the amount of exposure that we're getting um, to this virus. Um, so obviously that's a huge pro. I just don't think it's enough to, to tip the needle um, for us here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Scott, is it okay if I ask a follow-up question to that? Absolutely, sure. 
Um, so, you know, you talked about the Thanksgiving break, the winter break, um, and, you know, looking back at the stats from last year, it was really in November, December when COVID cases really peaked nationally, at, you know, really li closely linked to the holiday season and people traveling back and forth. Um, so what are your thoughts, Mrs. Minor, on um, going back to school after these holiday breaks um, and knowing that, you know, most likely students have traveled? Um, it's scary, but I will say my students are traveling now. They're traveling in sports competitions. I just had a student go to France for a family religious holiday because we just had a five-day weekend because of Labor Day and Rosh Hashanah. Um, they're traveling to Florida for cheer competitions. So they're traveling already. So I guess for me this year, knowing how much they're traveling already, there's not that heightened level of anxiety that there was um, perhaps last year um, with worrying about that was right when the time was that they were debating bringing us back to school. Fortunately, they did not. Um, but I would say for me, it doesn't seem different because I know just how much traveling my high schoolers are doing on a, on a, on a weekly basis and how much interaction they're having through sports, clubs, family get-togethers, all of those things. And uh, Ms. Martinson, what about uh, in your state? What is the discourse about going remote? You know, it's just something that's not, um, doesn't seem to be on the table. Now, is it, I I'd, like I said, it seemed like the governor cracked the door um, more of a threatening way. If you guys don't get it together, we're going to have to close the schools, um, which I don't know that that was really an effective way. Um, so it seems like it, it's just a no. I do agree with Angela that the only way our local board would close it down um, is if the governor or the state or local health officer, I think our local health officer would not close unless um, the state health officer. Um, Washington is seeing its largest uptick in history. So um, could that happen? Maybe. Um, I don't know that it would. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just not sure that I'm trying to imagine us going back remote. And uh, I've got things ready. We were told to have things ready, but it, I, there's not a lot of reasoning why we would have it ready because they're saying, oh, no, no way. And as far as kids traveling and stuff, we had Friday night lights here last week. Um, all of the, our local high schools had packed stadiums. They were outside, but there was no distancing, yelling and screaming and uh, for their team. So, um yeah, I just I wonder how that's how that's going to play out um, next week. And I, I will say my daughter attends Seattle University and Seattle University is um, sending kids home for Thanksgiving break and they're staying home through the new year so that they're not um, doing that traveling. I think it's a pretty good idea, but. I don't know if there's a point because my students right now are going wherever they want and seeing however many people. So if they dialed that back a little, then then sure, those travel restrictions make sense. Right now, I, I would agree that, yes, we should have restrictions, but we don't. 
So adding a restriction on my end is probably just window dressing. I just want to underline something. I make sure I'm hearing this right from both of you, Rebecca and Angela, that from your perspective and as a teacher, um, no guidance has been given as to how bad it could get before you would be asked to then shift back into a remote. And 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 the federal government doesn't have that threshold, nor does it have the power. Well, it does, but it has not exercised the power to do that at the state level. And then so you're, if I understand it right, there are health layers of health officials who could make that decision, but everybody sort of deferred to somebody else and you're waiting for the governor. And so it's just a wait and see. Am I, am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I think you are correct. In my particular county, our local health director seems to be a little more liberal with his COVID protocols that actually made state news, the guidance he was giving districts, which was not in compliance with CDC guidance. So I see no way that our county health official would say go remote. And we have not been given a clear, um, we have like a, a dashboard that last year we used where we would track cases in school. And if it reached above a certain number, we had to follow protocol closed right. for a certain amount of days. We have not been given any information other than they said there's still the dashboard. What the dashboard does, I'm not sure. And that's not my school, my school administrator's fault. Um, it's everyone really very hesitant to say, here's the number. And if we hit it, we're closing because they don't want to close. Yeah. Last year, we bargained a top line number that we would go back to remote. Um, we do not have that this year. Last year, our health department had a case count dashboard and a risk assessment dashboard, which would list like how, um, what we needed to close down based on hospitalizations versus case count. Um, the risk assessment dashboard is gone. I think we broke it, right? Our, our risk is so high right now that they're not measuring it. Um, and I, I think it's so, I think it's so interesting to me. It's a lot like um, if you had a highway where people just sped all the time and you were just like, well, get rid of the speed limit. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, but I do think that's where we're at. And I think, um, boy, nobody wants to pull the trigger and we are awfully close to being catastrophic. Like I said, my local hospitals were already on divert status. So how much worse can it get? I mean, I think we're about to find out because I think it is going to get worse. Just to want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about teaching in the time of COVID with Angela Miner and Rebecca Martinson. Um, I want to give a, an opportunity here just, and just, I'm a teacher and at university, and I have to say that um, any, any interaction with the students, I mean, especially as we had the brief opportunity here in Korea, which is doing things very differently from the United States, the brief opportunity to be in class together for a few weeks before then going remote again was like some of the best weeks I ever had as a teacher in a 22 year career as a teacher. And, um, uh, and it was really valuable. And then we went remote again. 
But I sort of just like to hear from each of you, like at some level beyond all the politics and beyond all the, the screaming and the, the incompetence, my word, incompetence of um, officials to give you some clear guidelines, what's it been like just to be with the students in this time? Is it, I mean, when you get in that classroom, you start teaching again, is it somehow some normalcy return? And, and I guess I just want to hear from you a bit on that, Angela. Uh, yeah, it, it is normalcy returning. And, and while I'm in my classroom, I typically forget, besides the mask, that we're in the middle of a pandemic because I do have a class full of students. And then I will remember as I go, when I, when I went today to help students register for something and they have their Chromebooks and they don't know how to do something. And so I'm getting really close to them and leaning over them to help them. And I'm like, oh, wait, I really shouldn't be this close to them. Um, so I tend to you tend to forget because uh, I missed that all last year. So even when we went hybrid, I, as I said, I had so many students that elected to stay home, which I completely respect for a variety of reasons, um, that when I saw any student, I was able to really form some really great bonds with the, with the few kids that I had in my classroom. Um, so that's what I miss. That's what teachers want. We don't want to be um, teaching remotely. We want kids in front of us, but we want to do it safely. Um, but yes, it's, it's, I, I'm doing um, partner work again, and kids are doing presentations, and we're planning for debates and mock courts and all of these really cool things, um, making sure we keep track of names for contract tracing and things like that, that added layer of prep that that takes. Um, but I agree with you, Scott. It's like, you know, the heavens o opened and you went, well, I get to do my job again, and I get to do what I love again, which is uh, be with students and connect with students. Rebecca, same to you. Yeah, I I love teaching. I love it. Um, that's my favorite place in the world is in front of my class. Um, I love showing them new things. It's a little bit hard right now because every day that we've been in schools because of um, different start times and vacations and rolling quarantines, I've had somebody who it's their very first day every day. So um, every class has been a very first day for someone. So getting the ball rolling, but I've lectured and we've done some projects and it is a, it is a strange feeling because it feels good. And it's the first thing that's felt good in a really long time, but it also, I'll be talking to a student and then realize, Oh, I'm really close to this child um, that I know is not vaccinated. And I didn't, I didn't expect that. And one thing that I've told people a lot, I love teaching. I don't plan to go anywhere yet. I love teaching, but you know what? It does not love me back and it hasn't. Um, and I don't think that's a new thing. I think COVID shined a light on that. I don't think it's new because They've been asking me to keep my door locked so that someone can't come in and shoot my students the whole time I've been a teacher instead of, you know, making people do background checks. Right. So I love teaching. I don't think it loves me back. And I have to decide um, if I love it enough for both of us. And right now I do. Will that be the same next year? I don't know. I don't. 
I read a post on LinkedIn this morning and it kind of, to quote, kind of quote it, it was, it described the 2020-2021 labor market as the great resignation. Um, so, you know, in this field, are our teachers leaving the profession? Um, and do you find yourself mentoring younger teachers at this time? What are your thoughts? Um, Ms. Martinson, you first, and then Ms. Minor. I, I know several. Um, I know a lot of um, teachers that were getting close to retirement that just went early, right? I know a lot of young people who joined the profession and um, they joined probably at the wrong time because they cannot imagine doing this the rest of their career. And so they've left for other professions. Um, some still within teaching, but they've gone to all virtual school or um at least out of K-12. As far as mentoring, um, I'm kind of in a box. Not a lot of people do exactly what I do because you have to be a nurse and you have to be a teacher. Um, but I will say uh, my son has his first ever seventh grade science class and my daughter just started her student teaching. So I think I did my share on mentoring because um, I made two teachers so far. So um but I, I have known a lot of people that have left. Um, I think for me, it's difficult because, as I said, we have another issue in our district, which is, which is our contract. Um, so currently, our, we, and we have a brand new superintendent, um, the phrase has been used, we are hemorrhaging teachers. Most of those are not resignations. Most of those are teachers who are going and taking jobs in other districts. Um, for reasons not related to COVID, but I agree with Rebecca that last year brought all those frustrations that people have been feeling about lots of different things, brought them to a head. Um, I did have a chance last spring to actually work with a student teacher. Um, so she taught during a pandemic and she taught hybrid um, and she's currently starting a long-term sub job in my daughter's uh, school district, which I'm really excited about. She was fantastic. Um, and it was a matter of um, not discouraging her because I love teaching and I want any, I, and she's going to be a great teacher and I want more great people and great teachers to be teachers, um, but also being realistic with her. Uh, and she got to see it up front about the challenges of teaching. People need to know that um, going in. I don't think we expose students, college students to that early enough um, about the reality of teaching. It's much tougher than I think a lot of people think it is. Um, but yes, I, I um, take student teachers as often as they would like to assign them to me. I really think that it's uh, a really important thing. Teaching is a collaborative profession and we only get better by working together. Um, so I really try to take every opportunity I can um, to work with other people. Rebecca, just following up, you know, Shivani um, quoted this phrase, the great resignation. So you're, as you said, you're both a teacher and a nurse. I mean, those are the two professions I think of right now as ones that are facing this kind of a of a cliff where we're literally society is pushing pushing people off. It's a, a do you want to give a, a quick snapshot of what you're seeing in nursing? Um, a lot of people leaving. You know, I'm seeing an interesting thing um, where I do see people kind of in the lower echelons of nursing saying that they're going to leave instead of getting a vaccination. Um, when our mandate goes in effect. Um, I was around during the H1N 
one um, epidemic. It certainly wasn't as profound, but we were also mandated to get vaccines then. A lot of people said they were going to quit and they did not. So I don't know mm-hmm. if we'll see similar things. Um, I, I'm really committed to staying and teaching for now. Like I said, that could be different. Um, I think I, I do know nurses who have left the bedside to do other like ambulatory care nursing um, because they can't, not they can't, they won't do ICU nursing anymore. Um, it is really frustrating and I'm hearing this frustration come through and then I'm hearing people get shamed for being frustrated. Um, they're frustrated that they're, this is now a preventable illness for most, for the most part. It's a vaccine preventable illness and people are choosing not to be vaccinated or most people, some people literally can't. And it's deeply, deeply discouraging um, to see people who were just kind of duped into being so ill um, because they believed something that wasn't true about a preventable illness. And I don't think, I, I, I can't imagine those folks going back to the bedside. They're traumatized. Um, they're, they're traumatized. So maybe, but I don't see it. So I think the great resignation is happening across fields, though, as um, the COVID has really shined a light on the disparities um, between the working class, the haves and have-nots, and really shined a light on, is it worth it to stay in a job that treats you badly? And I think a lot of our service industry, they've left because they are not treated well. And it's hard to blame them for that. Well, we're, we're up on time for this episode of COVID calls. I feel like we have enough here for another couple of hours of of discussion, but I also have to recognize that our teachers probably have preparations for tomorrow uh, and the many other things pulling on their time. Um, I want to meet again. Um, I hope we don't have to wait a year to do it, but you know, what an illuminating conversation in Shivani. I'd give you a chance if you want to say anything as we close out here. But um, you know, I grew up in a house with teachers and a family with teachers. So I come sort of predisposed to um, just really admire and pay close attention um, to not only what teachers teach, but how they talk about their teaching. And I'm really worried. And and I wish you um, a, a lot of solidarity. And I just wish you great success this year. And I hope when those people travel and come back that they get vaccinated and everybody's okay. So Here's hoping you have a better year this year than last year. And Angela and Rebecca, thanks for what you're doing. And and we want to see you back uh, soon on COVID calls. Shivani, I'll give you the last word. Um, Yeah, I I just wanted to say one thing, which is, I don't know if I mentioned this before during the call, but Mrs. Minor actually used to be my AP Gov teacher in high school. And I only had her for a semester, but I can say this with all authenticity, the fact that Teachers have a lasting impact on their students, whether it be during normal times or COVID or whatever. And just thank you to you both, um, because there are students who do look up to you, whether they're your current students or you've already had them. So thank you. Thank you, Shivani. Just really quick, Shivani sends emails every time and she says, I don't know if you remember me. And I'm like, of course, Shivani, of course I remember you. Every day I walk in, I smile because you painted the earth 
uh, and I have a, the painting right on my board along with a thank you note that she wrote me. So I love you. I'm so proud of you. And, and don't you don't ever have to reintroduce yourself to me in an email. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> Yeah, I thank you so much. This has been the best part of my year. It, it really has. It's um, and talking to Shivani and then watching the show so often and seeing all the experts. It has been. Um, it has gotten me through some really hard times. Just watching and enjoying. Well, thanks to all of you for that. And uh, Shivani, thanks for joining me today as a co-host. I love to get you here in front of the in front of the camera. So um, to be continued, everyone, thanks again. Uh, COVID calls every 6 p.m. Eastern time, uh, every weekday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. And this is a special COVID calls that we had at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next week on COVID calls. <laughs>